Welcome to Midrats with Sal from Commander Salamander and Eagle One from Eagle Speak at Sea or Shore, your home for a discussion of national security issues and all things maritime. And welcome aboard, everybody. I am the aforementioned Sal, along with my co-host, the ever-genial Eagle One of Eagle Speak. Really glad to have you on board. And if you're with us live, I'd like to invite you to scroll down to the bottom of the show page where we have the chat room up and running. That's the perfect way to share your thoughts during the show or letting us know if there are any questions you would like for us to address to our guests. And if you need to leave before the show ends and want to see what you missed or you want to catch up on previous shows, if you don't already, sign up for the podcast on iTunes, Spreaker, or other podcast aggregators you may use, and that way MidRaps will be ready for you when your schedule allows. Now, on to today's show. And Speaker Pelosi's recent visit to Taiwan, it brought back, uh, at least for a, a brief minute or two, the, the national security eyeballs, ears, and minds back towards the ongoing and unfolding uh, power dynamics in the Western Pacific involving the People's Republic of China. And Taiwan's a, a big part of that, but it's by far not the exclusive part of it. And as we've talked about here a fair bit, um, a little more than two decades we and most of our traditional allies have been very focused on other things, whether they were small brush wars in Central Asia and Southwest Asia, or for that matter, what we have going on in Eastern Europe right now. The peoples of Republic of China have been very uh, disciplined, and I wouldn't say aggressive. Uh, maybe a way to look at it is just competent in pursuing some long-range goals that they have been focused on for quite a length of time. And we have a great guest on today who has been watching that, and in many ways, and in a lone way, warning of that for a very long time. Not new to the issue, and very in-depth knowledge, and that is James E. Fennell, Captain of the United States Navy, retired. Jim concluded a near 30-year career as a naval intelligence officer specializing in Indo-Pacific security affairs with an emphasis on the Chinese Navy and operations. He is currently a government fellow with the Geneva Center for Security Policy in Switzerland. Jim, welcome to Midrats. Well, uh, good evening, uh, gents. Uh, really appreciate and I'm honored to be invited to uh, uh, this blog. Uh, you guys are uh, famous across the U.S. Navy and uh, for speaking the truth and, uh, and keeping us honest with the deck plate. So I, I'm really pleased to be here. Thank you for the invite. Yes, sir. And uh, we appreciate you having come on board because you, and I'll, I'll probably address this in a, in a follow-on question, is you have the, the well-deserved reputation of, of somebody else who will tell you what he's thinking, whether that is what is the popular thing or the desired thing or not. And I think a uh, great thing about having you on Midrats here is you have that mindset, but you also have the track record. And you know, before we start digging back to there, just because it was the bold-faced item that got everybody looking. And 
for those that have watched either Speaker Pelosi or the Chinese situation, they know that uh, Speaker Pelosi has a track record here of uh, poking the the dragon on the tip of the nose. There's a great video out there from 1991 where just a couple years after Tiananmen Square massacre, she's out there unfoiling a banner and having the Chinese police scream at her. And when she went to go visit Taiwan recently, that wasn't a shock for me, but I I wanted to get your take on how this was all brought out into public. In theory, and I agree with the people who have said this, probably the best thing for everybody would have been if she just showed up. And it appears that it was the Secretary of State who pre-announced her arrival in Taiwan. And I just wanted to get your take, if you're going to have an individual like Speaker Pelosi go and do what she did, was the way we did it the optimal way, or would it have been better if she just showed up? And what are your thoughts about the initial and follow-on reaction from the People's Republic of China? Yeah, I, you know, I don't live in D.C. anymore, and I, I didn't live there very long when I was in the Navy. Uh, but it seems pretty clear that this was not handled well uh, from the fact that uh, the visit was leaked to the press, uh, the fact that uh, we had the president come out and say that the, the Defense Department had issued a report saying that she should not go, and they thought that, that her going would be, uh, you know, uh, damaging to the region. Uh, it seemed really incredible to me that, uh, I mean, in my, my time in the Naval Intelligence, almost 30 years, I never saw one time that uh, the U.S. intelligence community issued a report on a, on a member of Congress traveling. So I was kind of surprised to hear that. And subsequently, I, you know, my conversations with folks in, in the, you know, in PACOM and other areas uh, said that they, they have no knowledge of such a report. So it seems like at a minimum it's been handled very badly and it would have been much better for her just to show up and, and make the statement and go home. Uh, but, you know, we can focus on that because that's what, kind of what we do when these crises happen. We look to, happen we'd like to blame somebody uh, but i like to take a step back and say well, why did we even get in this position why are we in this position where we're having to discuss whether or not did she dance around the eggshells correctly or not uh and i think the answer or maybe it wasn't her maybe it was blinken or whatever i think the real issue is we're, we're in an environment for the last 50 years uh where we've had a national security of arena especially in the, the China hands community that have told us that we must uh, not provoke China. And so therefore we must, uh, you know, be very temperament, uh, temper, uh, temperate in what we say about China. We must not provoke them. We must not embarrass them. We must not speak of our problems publicly only behind closed doors. And China's got us to do that. The Chinese Communist Party has got the U.S. foreign policy and security community to do that. Uh, for 50 years, and it was only in the previous administration that broke from that mold and said, no, uh, we're not going to play this game of uh, what Pompeo called blind engagement. I've used the phrase, we had a policy of uh, unconstrained and unaccountable engagement with the PRC. And it's interesting to me that as one of the results of this uh, visit and the Chinese furor over it, uh, and 
and you know, everybody's saying it's been a reaction, but I think we can talk about that separately, whether or not this is a reaction from China or this is something that was already pre-planned. Uh, but simply to say they came out and said, here's the eight things that we're not going to do anymore. We're not going to have you know, any more talks in the military theater commander talks. We're not going to have the defense policy coordination talks. We're not going to have the uh, military uh, uh, maritime uh, consultative uh, agreement talks, and we're not going to look in, in, and have more talks on uh, narcotics and crime, and we're not going to talk about climate change. All key areas that revolve around three elements of our government, the Department of Defense, Department of Justice slash FBI, and then lastly, the climate uh, issue. And so I think what we are seeing is the result of 50 years of a policy of unconstrained engagement uh, that was what I attribute to Henry Kissinger's visit, and I call this the Kissinger School. And for 50 years, the Kissinger School has dominated both Democrat and Republican administrations on how we approach dealing with China. And it's put us in a position that the Speaker of the House 20 years or uh, 25 years after Newt Gingrich went in 97, another Speaker goes, and now this is a cause for such furor. And so how did we get ourselves in that position? And I believe we're in that position because we allowed China to dictate to the United States on how we conducted foreign policy. And we're living with that now, and it's being used by the Chinese Communist Party to further divide and weaken the United States resolve. Um, go ahead. I was going to say that there's a lot to unpack in what you said. Uh, the the view, uh, I mean, we've we've been talking about China for quite a while on this program, and and uh, many of us who have read Kissinger's on China <laughs> book and all that stuff knew, you know, that the philosophy was that we would get in somehow encourage China to become part of the of the world as developed by the Western powers since World War II, mostly under U.S. Uh, auspices, and. Uh, what we what we see is that China has they're marching to a completely different drummer. Can you kind of discuss their their view of sovereignty as compared to what we would expect from the the Westphalian world? Yeah, I mean the Chinese Communist Party uh, is in, in essence another dynasty in the long history of China's dynasties, uh, and in this case, you know they have an agenda, and they hid the agenda for. 30 years under Deng Xiaoping with his, you know, uh, hide and bide strategy or philosophy, which is to say we need to be hiding our capabilities and, 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 and not showing our weaknesses to the world uh, for a period of time until we can get our feet, uh, you know, essentially on the deck and get a solid footing to where we can go toe-to-toe with the rest of the world. And so they did that for, for a number of years after Deng opened up uh, their economy and allowed the market, some market forces to come in and build their economy. And then under Zhang Zemin and Hu Jintao, uh, the, the, the next two follow-on uh, paramount leaders of the PRC, they were continuing to not only build their economy, but they started this military modernization back in the, in the, the late 90s after the, you know, the last Taiwan Strait crisis in 95 and 96. Uh, following Lee Tung Wei, the former president of Taiwan's visit to his old alma mater, uh, Cornell, and their angst over that and firing missiles at Taiwan. Now here we are 25 years later, and, you know, the, the modernization program has, you know, it's now come to fruition. The Chinese military, the PLA, is not 
a paper tiger and it's not something small, it's something real. I'm sitting here right now looking at a laptop uh, from China Daily today, uh, an article, the top article in China Daily, it says military drills create strategic advantage. And I'm looking at a PLA Navy soldier and their version of blueberries with the binoculars sitting out looking at one of Taiwan Navy's uh, old Knox-class uh, uh, frigates. And what, what is behind that Knox-class frigate are the mountains of Taiwan. I presume by the geography that's on the east coast of Taiwan because the mountains go vertically up to several thousand feet. And, and they're so close that you have to believe that this Chinese ship is, you know, right at the 12 nautical mile mark uh, as he's being shadowed by this P, uh, uh, rock or Taiwan Navy uh, frigate. And so how did that happen? How did we go from, you know, 25 years ago, 20 years ago, 15 years ago, 10 years ago even, where the establishment was saying, we don't have to worry about Chinese military. We just have to keep engaging with them because if we engage with them, uh, they'll, they'll figure out it's in their best interest to follow the Westphalian system of nation states and this kind of liberalized world order where everybody buys and sells and trades and everybody's, uh, you know, economies improve and all, you know, the rising tide lifts all boats mindset. But instead, China has rejected that clearly. So after 50 years of engagement, which we can honestly say the engagement policy when it came about when Kissinger sent, uh, or Nixon sent Kissinger to China in 71, 72, and then Carter changed the recognition in 79, uh, that, that, that made sense because we were trying to triangulate against the Soviet Union, the Russians, and, 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 and weaken their ability and, and make them think of the, the, what was underneath them in China. Uh, that made you know rational sense 50 years ago, 40 years ago, but over the last 30 years and certainly the last 20 years, it has not made sense to continue this unconstrained and unaccountable policy. And so what happened is we just kept engaging and engaging and engaging and engaging and inviting them to RIMPAC, inviting them into the World Trade Organization, inviting them into everything, and never having a, 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 a sense of it to say after five years to stop and say, okay, let's do an evaluation to see if we're seeing what we're doing is paying off. And that, that never came about for many reasons, but one of it is, is because in America, in our academic circles, the China hands were preaching this engagement philosophy uh, for a lot of reasons. Some of it was in their own self-interest because they wanted to continue to, to go to China to study, but some of it was their ideological outlook and some of it was, as you mentioned at the opening, we spent 30 years in the desert from you know, desert storm until just this last couple of years when we pulled out of Afghanistan last year. Um, we basically spent 30 years giving up this idea that we're a maritime nation, and we started you know, boar sighting uh, in, in the Middle East and in the desert. I mean, we remember we had a CNO who went on to become the Joint Chiefs of Staff chairman who was proudly proclaimed when he was a CNO that he had more sailors uh, ashore than he did afloat in the CENTCOM AOR at one point. So, I mean, we, we went from being a dominant Navy of the world with the maritime strategy at the end of the Cold War to from the sea, then forward from the sea, and we, we never thought we'd ever have a pure competitor in another Navy. And when warnings were made in the early 2000s, I can remember... <laughs> 
in 2000 being at Pack Fleet. I can remember in 2003 and 2005 being aboard the Kitty Hawk, the CTF-70. The, the fleet was warning, but those warnings were ignored and, and, and sloughed off, and in large part because it was the establishment in Washington and the elites back there, the academics, and the people that occupied the positions in state and, and DOD, senior positions, that said, oh, that's, that's just all not really going to happen. It's enough, we've got decades and decades of advantage over the Chinese, so we don't have to worry about it. Uh, well, here we are. I'm lo- again, I'm looking at a picture of a Chinese warship with a Chinese officer or a petty officer with binoculars looking at a rock frigate in the background is Formosa, is Taiwan. They have surrounded Taiwan in this last four days of this, you know, what I would call not just a, an exercise, but it's a sea power demonstration. It's an air power demonstration. It's a rocket force ballistic missile power demonstration. And, you know, we have to ask ourselves, how did we get here? And why is it that we're here? And what are we going to do to change our philosophical outlook on how we approach the People's Republic of China because they are marching on a timeline to get to your your question. The Chinese Communist Party is on a timeline. And Xi Jinping has revealed to us since he's come into power and he actually came to power in twenty twelve at the end with the Communist Party, but formerly with the state in since twenty thirteen, he's announced to the world that he has China on a path and a timeline for the the great rejuvenation of China, or called sometimes the China dream. And that, and that dream is to restore China to what they believe is their proper and legitimate uh, territory. And so uh, the fact that there is a timeline uh, associated with the Chinese Communist Party is, a, is, a, is a, an idea that has been rejected by American uh, China. Uh, I can remember being at a conference, it's a uh, you know, I won't give the name of the conference, but it's associated with some folks that uh, that touch the Navy. And at the conference in 2015, and then again in 2019, the idea of a, tw- a timeline was rejected. As, er- as late as 2019, the idea that China was on a timeline for the Great Rejuvenation was rejected by the majority of, of the China hands. And now, we, I think people are starting to really say, well, maybe we had that wrong. And, you know, last March in 2021, uh, the former PACOM commander, Admiral Davidson, said, hey, I think it'll be by, I think they could conduct an invasion of Taiwan by 2027. Last year, the Minister of Defense from the, uh, Taiwan said he thought 2025 would be a year that the PRC could attempt to make an invasion and, and not have any serious problems. Uh, the Japanese last year, uh, several leaders from Japan, uh, pro, you know, Vice Prime Minister, Minister of Defense, Vice Minister of Defense, all came out and made public statements that said that Japan's national security was dependent upon Taiwan's national security. And if, any, if you know Japan and you know Japanese politicians, you know what a transformational statement that is in terms of they, they would have never said that. It was too controversial. And you have... You know, people in the government on currently on watch. You know, last year making those statements. You know, the recently assassinated Prime Minister of Japan, uh, Shinzo Abe, also very vocal about uh, Japan's security being tied to Taiwan's because they could see that the threat was imminent. So 
I've been using a phrase called a decade of concern uh, about this situation, and, and I can give you the parameters of what this decade of concern means. So we know uh, through – go ahead. No, I would say the um, – I, I wanted to step back a bit because I think it's important, especially for those that are just now tuning into the challenge, is you had a, a couple of things that you mentioned that just – you know, brought up a, a lot of points that, that I, I wanted to, to talk to you about. You know, you talked about the 50-year timeline. You talked about the old China hands. And you mentioned a conference. Well, I last saw you in person. I think it was in San Diego in 2013. So let's all put a mark for 2013 because it's going to come up again here in a second. Is I think you can, you know, from my seat at least, if I was looking for the big pixels of the U.S. approach, modern approach to China, you had the opening years, which was very Cold War focused when, you know, when Kissinger and Nixon opened the door to China. And that whole period played in until 1992, and I think we entered a different era where we became almost wanting China to beat us. Um, I remember in 1992 – you had McDonnell Douglas. We look at it from a 2022 perspective. It seems insane, but people who, who pushed against it were called all sorts of nasty names and fired. But you had McDonnell Douglas agree to go over to China to build their MD-80 mid-range jetliner in China, which meant the Chinese were going to get Western manufacturing techniques, aerospace expertise, uh, and I'm not even going to talk about what they're doing in academia. And then you had, I think the peak of that period was, I think it was approximately 1998 with Loral Aerospace openly and proudly mm-hmm. said, yeah, we're going to help the Chinese develop MERV technology. They didn't call it that, but when you pop off more than one satellite off a rocket, that's what it is. And then we had the period from that peak through the George W. Bush and the Obama where, you know, we welcome the peaceful rise. And then in 2016, in COVID, there was a big change. Uh, with the Trump administration, but we've seen with the Biden administration, their foreign policy are a bunch of people who were the backups in the B team from the Obama administration. We're seeing a drift back or at least an inertial pull back to a less confrontational stance. And a lot of that is because we, you, me, and other people who have been looking at China from a different angle, now, how can we expect our government and its institutions to have different policies, different views of things, when we have embedded, isolated, and blinkered decision-making, especially in the career positions at the Department of State and in a lot of the intel communities, that we have the same people from the same places and the same background? You know, how can we help push a different result when the intellectual capital that's driving our policy isn't changing? Yeah, I, I couldn't agree with you more. That's a, your description of the kind of the timeline on our end of what's occurred and these these major kind of steps step ups in this what I call the strategic trend line of acquiescence to China. Uh, and the, the answer is there has to be. I think there's got to be a purge. There's got to be a and I don't mean a, a violent purge. I'm talking about a purge and the kinds of people that we have there, and we have to start holding people accountable. I'll give you an example, the Scarborough Shoal incident. In 2012, in April of 2012, 
the Chinese were caught with their pants down around their ankles, raping and pillaging, so to speak, Scarborough Shoals, stealing giant clams and coral reefs and coral heads and, and fishing in this reef, which was well inside the Philippines, Republic of the Philippines' exclusive economic zone. Philippines had required from us an ex-Hamilton-class cutter, and they just received it. It had just completed its first kind of sweep through the South China Sea to do resupply for their outpost down there and was heading back to Manila, and they got word that the Chinese were, you know, in, inside Scarborough Shoal, which is 140 nautical miles east-northeast of Manila. And so the uh, Gregorio del Pilar, this uh, new flagship of the Philippine Navy, you know, beats feet up there and finds these uh, commercial vessels from the PRC, you know, stealing their resources, their, their, their economic gains. And so they confront these uh, commercial ships. They go aboard with their sailors. They videotape uh, what's going on. Their sailors have got guns and whatnot. And this all hits the press in China, and within a day or two, two or three days, China dispatches uh, you know, up to 10, 11 of their ships uh, from the various elements of what was then called the Five Dragons before they consolidated the uh, Chinese Coast Guard in 2013. And uh, the Chinese basically surrounded Scarborough Shoal, and there was a standoff because there was a few Filipino uh, fishermen still inside uh, the shoal, and, you know, we started negotiating with the Filipinos and their Ministry of Foreign Affairs and the PRC's Ministry of Foreign Affairs led by Madam Fu Ying. And the, our, the, our lead negotiator in this was the Assistant Secretary of State for East Asia, Kurt Campbell. And from April to June, uh, Campbell met with the Filipinos and Fu Ying uh, to discuss how they could defuse the situation. And they came to an agreement, Kurt thought, that on the uh, you know 15th of July or 15th of June 2012, all the ships would leave the shoal uh, from both nations, and then it would just be you know worked out through some kind of legal process. Well, on the 15th of June, uh, the morning came, and the Filipinos dutifully left as they said they would, and the Chinese didn't. And since that day, since the 15th or 16th of June 2012, China has had sovereign control over Scarborough Shoal, which is, you know, they took territory from one of our treaty allies without firing a shot, and simply because the United States uh, negotiating team was led by somebody that was incompetent and incapable, grossly incapable, and that was 10 years ago. Well, guess who's the new, or guess who's been for the last 18, 20 months, uh, the Biden administration, Asia czar, the same guy, Kurt Campbell. So he's been on watch for 18 months, and he stood by and allowed and watched as China signs a security pact uh, with uh, the Solomon Islands. Uh, and you know, it just happens today, we're talking on the 80th anniversary of U.S. Marines landing in Guadalcanal and Tulagi. So here we are 80 years after the start of many, many thousands of Americans and, and, and our allies dying on those islands, and Kurtz again, you know, the guy on watch when something goes down that's not good for America and our national security and our region's national security and our allies' national security. We have some people in there that are incompetent and have failed, and yet they continue to keep being brought forward. So unless we develop a system, a national security system, that holds people accountable uh, like we would an aviator on a, you know, an aircraft carrier, unless we have a FENAB board 
that is able to adjudicate and say, I'm sorry, shipmate, you're a good American, you're, you're a naval aviator, but you're not qualified anymore to land on the boat because you're too, you know, you did this wrong too many times, and we've judged that you're not qualified. So, sorry, you're going to have to get another line of work. Until we get that kind of system in with our national security and intelligence apparatus, we're going to continue to suffer. And I think that's really a key position and an issue that we need to address as a nation. One of the uh, one of the questions that that was I'm watching China, you know, shoot their missiles around the perimeter of, of Taiwan and run their ships around the perimeter of Taiwan and and uh, kind of engage in activities that would you know like we, to show that we could do whatever we want to whenever we want to. Uh, you know, there, there there was that that study one time about China's three warfares. One of them is the and you just mentioned it. You know, how do you win without actually fighting? The psychological aspect of of what they're up to. Uh, do you perceive that this stuff is what they're currently doing with Taiwan and the threats they're making? Some of it triggered by Pelosi. Pelosi's visit, I guess, but some of which may have uh, it, maybe we just sped up their timeline a little bit for this. Is this how much of this is one of their warfare techniques, their psychological um, influence operations? No, I think it's totally that. I firmly believe that the Chinese Communist Party prefers to achieve their great restoration. I, I said re rejuvenation first, but if you go back 10 plus years ago, the Chinese would talk about restoration. They want to have what they believe is their territory uh, back under their control, and they would prefer to do it without firing a shot. They would prefer to do like they did at Scarborough. That is their preferred method. And so they're going to use the three warfares and there's no question that what they're doing right now in this four-day exercise is meant to fr frighten and intimidate Taiwan uh, into capitulation. That said, we know that the Chinese Communist Party also, I guess what I'm saying is doing information warfare uh, against China and psychological warfare is not exclusive of actually using kinetic military force. They're not mutually exclusive uh, thought patterns. And so they're more on a continuum. It's on this timeline again. And so we know that the Chinese military was ordered by Hu Jintao and Xi Jinping to be able to have the capability to take Taiwan by military force starting in 2020. And so for many, many years, the military, the PLA, had been being modernized to have that capability. And they had the assumption of, if I can take Taiwan, then I can take the Senkakus and I can take the Spratlys uh, or, or the rest of the South China Sea. And what we saw from 2012 until now is effectively China's taken control of the South China Sea. They have de facto control of the South China Sea on a day-to-day -day basis just because of the presence of their vessels has dramatically increased. As I tell people, before October of 2015, the Chinese used to play zone defense in the South China Sea, and they would you know, they didn't have the force structure to be able to challenge every foreign warship or submarine or, or aircraft that entered the South China Sea. But after October 2015, when the USS Lawson did a FONOP, a Freedom of Navigation Operation, since that time, China has shadowed and monitored and, uh, you know, challenged every foreign warship that's entered the South China Sea since October 2015. They went from zone defense to man-to-man -man defense. And they could do that because they had a force structure that allowed them to do that. So they've been building up, and they have a capability. And 
while the party would like to be able to acquire territory, like they got Hong Kong, right? They essentially were able to acquire Hong Kong through the three warfares and through some, you know, uh, legal warfare, psychological warfare, information warfare, and they didn't really have to fire shots. Now, some people would say, well, the Hong Kong police fired shots and during the, you know, the, 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 some of the, the Umbrella Revolution events and protests, but in large part, we can say that seven plus million people were brought under the control of the Chinese Communist Party without firing a shot. South China Sea, Scarborough, seven new islands in the Spratlys all built without firing a shot. So China's on a kind of a roll from their perspective, but they have built in a failsafe, which is the PLA. And so the real question is, is how long are they going to wait before they finally feel they have to pull the lanyard and dispatch the PLA to take uh, the rest of the territory that they think is theirs? And I believe there's a model out there, out there for them to use because they've told us and G has told us that they, you know, they're going to celebrate the 100th anniversary of the People's Republic of China on 1 October 2049. And so whoever is the paramount leader of the PRC on that date, you know, in, in 27 years from now, that person is going to have to, uh, when he stands up in front of the Forbidden City and announces to the world that China's celebrating the 100th anniversary, they're going to have to also say we've completed the great rejuvenation, we've achieved the China dream, and we are completely territorially whole and, and integrated. And so that person can't stand there if Taiwan is still independent or if the Senkakus are still independent. So the question becomes how late in that spectrum of time can you use military force and still expect the world to come to Beijing to celebrate this uh, great rejuvenation on 1 October 2049, which is kind of the end date of the rejuvenation. And I think the example there is an example that the Chinese Communist Party has already witnessed from the West. And I, I use the example of look what happened in June of 1989. The world witnessed the People's Republic of China, uh, you know, basically kill their citizens uh, because they wanted to have freedom of speech. And we watched tanks on TV, on CNN, you know, run over Chinese students. And the world sat back and said, oh, my gosh, this is terrible. This is barbarous. How could they do that? In a sense, we put, them on a, we put the PRC in a penalty box, and we said, that's bad behavior. That, that's unacceptable. Now fast forward to uh, 8 August 2008 in the Bird's Nest Stadium in Beijing the opening night of the uh, 2008 Beijing Summer Games Olympics. And if you recall that opening ceremony, I'm sure you watched it, you know, the Bird's Nest Stadium seats 80,000 people, and it was, it was packed. And it was, everybody was in there. And at the top of the stadium, there's an air-conditioned skybox. And at the top of the air-conditioned skybox, there was the nine members of the standing committee of the Politburo. It was nine then, it's seven now. And the, the head of the Chinese uh, Communist Party then was Hu Jintao. So there was pictures and video of Hu Jintao standing there wearing a mouse suit looking down on this morass of people. And uh, he was, you know, looking cool and calm and collected. But what he saw down there uh, in that sweltering heat, it was like 98 degrees, 95% humidity, he saw one guy down there. And that one guy had his suit coat off, had his tie off, had his shirt sleeves rolled up, and he had sweat stains under his armpits. And who was that guy? 
was George Bush, the leader of the free world. And so what did that tell the Chinese Communist Party? That from 1989, when the world condemned China as being barbarians, to August of 2008, in 19 years, the world went from condemning them to praising them and wanting to attend their opening ceremonies of their Olympic Games. That's 20 years. So if you back up 20 years from 1 October 2049, you basically get to 2030. So I call 2020 to 2030 the timeline of when we should be really concerned or the decade of concern or as some have called it, the decade of danger, you know, after, you know, and other names. But this 10-year period is a period that we should be paying attention to. And it also coincides with a lot of other interesting demographic challenges to China in terms of, uh, you know, gender uh, disparity, age, uh, access to water, access to fuel, access to food, corresponds to issues with the United States military, the, our Navy, and the bathtub, and our, and our submarine force, and on our surface force. Uh, so there's a lot of things there in that t- decade. And I had always been, I've been talking about this for 10 years, since 2010, 2011, and now here we are. And what's really, you know, when I gave those talks before, I'd always say, well, it could be 2030 probably, or maybe even as late as 2035. Well, now with everything that we're seeing over the last three years with COVID and what we're seeing now with, you know, before COVID and, and in fact, 2018, the Chinese really started to turn up the heat on Taiwan uh, with these kind of signals, as you you mentioned, this kind of psychological warfare, these, you know, daily penetrations of the South, uh, the Taiwan Air Defense Identification Zone in the South China Sea and other things. Now we've just seen it ramp up to a new level, a new normal. So now the Chinese have said, we're going to be doing these live fire exercises all the time, and we're going to be continually pressing you, and we're going to operate on your east coast, which is a whole new way of thinking. And we've got aircraft carriers now, and we have carrier strike groups that are going to be operating on the east coast. So we're, under a, we're in a new level here where they keep getting closer and closer and closer to using force, and the real question is, when could they actually jump off and do it? And that, that's one of the things that came out in the last month that had me, and I've, I like using the phrase because he doesn't like you to use it, but the, the Davidson window that you, you mentioned before is one of the variables in that has always been, and, and I would offer to the listeners, if you haven't spent a lot of time recently diving into demographics, you need to do it. We are, not to exaggerate, in an unprecedented period of human history, where population is going to be contracting dramatically. It makes a big difference, but we could per- spend a whole day talking about that. But dial it back a bit. The Chinese have been saying for a while that they expected their population to peak around 2029. Numbers matter. There will be math. But they're, um, and this is Chinese data, which is interesting into itself. They released data this spring where they've adjusted their numbers and said, no, actually, our population isn't peaking 2029, it's 2022. And they're going to be losing the equivalent of the population of of Belgium and a couple more million every year here pretty soon. And that's part of the equation for when China will move and when not. And what's frustrating, kind of like the answer you gave earlier in the hour where you talk about some of the players here, intellectually, 
the people that our nation is relying on to be the responsible actors for America's interests. Intellectually, they seem stuck in aspic. And you mentioned a decade ago, 2012, and I mentioned before when I saw you in, in 2013 speaking. When you go back there, and I'll give credit to my friend Claude, who has, has been banging this numbers battle for quite a while, and people can Google it themselves. These numbers come from ONI, so I rely on them. The, if you go back to 2012, 2013, uh, the, the Chinese Navy had a battle force of about 225 ships. If you included their Coast Guard, uh, you were looking at the, the, the Navy and the Coast Guard combination between 350 and 375 ships. If you come to today, what we're looking at is the Chinese Navy is 375 ships. If you include their Coast Guard, it's about 620. If you include the maritime militia, they're already over 700. And when you look at the U.S. Navy, we're a two-ocean Navy, and we like to distract ourselves all over the place. So if you ignore the Chinese Coast Guard, which you can't, if you ignore the maritime militia, which you shouldn't, if you just look at the Chinese Navy, which is the lowball number, um, you've got 375 ships. And if you held the gun to the back of uh, a decision maker's noggin, you might get 100 U.S. Navy warships headed west of Wake. I don't think a lot of our decision makers have intellectually, or maybe emotion is a, is a better term, hoisted on board the difference and force dynamics in the Western Pacific that's taken place since they left the Obama administration and have walked into the Biden administration. And as a result, a lot of their decisions are not 2022 decisions. It can't be a case of, of ignorance or a lack of intelligence. These are very well-credentialed um, and well-placed people. Uh, it seems to be something else. Uh, I know you're not a psychiatrist per se, but where where does this inability to think about the now and the next five years and trend lines come from? Is it a lack of comfort or just a a lack of diverse opinion in their circle? I've uh, evolved over the years on this specific question. And I'll just point out, you know, you mentioned the, the kind of the numbers mismatch. If you look at the latest uh, 2022 navigation plan that calls for about 355 manned ships and 150 unmanned vessels, that's the newest, you know, latest numbers out of this administration. It, that sounds okay, like somebody's getting it, but then you look at when are they calling that for, and it's year 2050. So to your point, we, we seem to be – doing something purposefully wrong to be prepared to confront, uh, let alone deter PRC from what they have told us is their strategic goals. And so the question is, why is that? And I had a glimpse of this when I was at Austin Naval Intelligence, uh, 06 to 08. I remember having a conversation in the Pentagon uh, with somebody in the NT staff, senior civilian, and uh, they're gone now. They gave an answer, which is basically to say, we can't compete with them. And, and this guy was really smart, former Navy officer, really intelligent. And 
basically what he was saying is there's no way we compete given the domestic political situation that we have, where we're going as a nation domestically, uh, and the growth of our federal government and the kinds of things that we're doing. We'll never be able to compete with them. And so I think, unfortunately, I hate to say this, but I think there is, the, 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 if you want to call it, the conventional wisdom in Washington is, is that America is entering this period of decline like the Great Britain and, and other great powers, and they believe it is their job to manage this decline like the British have and the U.K. did uh, in the transition essentially from British empire to American empire. And uh, it frustrates me to hear that because I'm not a quitter, and I don't believe that our best days are behind us if America can get its act together and start you know, defending our interests, explaining these things to our people. Uh, but it's hard. It's hard not to come to that decision. It's hard not to ask yourself how for the last 20 years we haven't had any flag officers or senior naval officials that have spoken out about this in stark and uncompromising terms. It, how is that possible? And, and there's a lot of factors that go into it. Again, I blame in mar- large part uh, the China hands that have convinced us that, that we are on this trajectory. And that mindset has been promoted, if you follow Chinese propaganda and what the Chinese tell us every day. I mean, they've been preaching American decline, China on the rise for over a decade, well over a decade. Uh, and we're buying into it. And we're accepting it. And we don't seem to have any people in leadership that are willing to say, hey, that's not acceptable. We're not going to put up with that because we know that living under the rule of the Chinese Communist Party is, is not freedom, is not, is not going to work out. I mean, all, we, we have a taste of it even now after two and a half years of this nonsense with the virus. We're, we're seeing a, the institution globally of a worldwide social credit system. I mean, I live here in Europe, and I, I couldn't go to I, – I mean, they're checking your phone, and you have to show your papers. Show me your papers, man to go have a, a beer. Show me your papers to go to buy a pair of sho- shoes. The only line they didn't cross in the last two and a half years is show me your papers to buy food. But there were people calling for that. Okay, We had people calling for show me your papers to get medical treatment. So we adopted the PRC's zero COVID approach in many places in the West, not just in America, but in, across Europe. We are adopting their policies and procedures, and I don't want to live in a world where I have to show a smartphone and scan myself in or scan my you know, code if I can get out of my, my, my apartment to get down the elevator, to get out the building, to go walk down the street, to cross a crosswalk for crying out loud. We saw videos out of China where you couldn't even cross a crosswalk if your smartphone had a red check for your health status. These are, these are totalitarian uh, systems designed by the PRC that are being foisted upon us, and now we have a class of people in Washington that was promoting engagement, 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 and part of that engagement has, has basically numbed us, made us numb to the, 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 the deleterious effects of what the Chinese Communist Party is pushing. And it's made us unprepared, and it's made our Navy not uh, to be effective. And we're now facing, like you said, a serious numbers game. And the question is, what can we do about it? 
Well, one one suggestion that Brent Sadler at Heritage uh, proposed was that we have to take seriously the need for a continuous presence in the South China Sea, uh, among other places. And he proposed uh, basically having I don't know I'm going to call them station ships, but that may not be the right term, where we you know we put some ships in strategic points in the South China Sea and have them there continuously. It's it's uh, somewhere I read a pretty good article about it's the fact that we don't stay long enough to encourage our allies to think we're going to be there when they need us. Uh, I don't know if you're familiar with, with uh, uh, Brett's uh, theory, but it, it seems to me that, that as, as a person who used to sail those waters, that uh, it, is a, uh, it is a challenge to have that I mean, we, when we had Subic Bay, that was important and a good place to have. But I guess we'd have to operate in Singapore or, or some other location now. And it's got to be something that, that represents a real uh, challenge to the uh, to the Chinese. I don't think the LCS necessarily, as it's currently configured, would be one of those things. But and what, what do you think about that concept of maintaining a continuous rotating presence uh, in the South China Sea in strategic locations? Right. I'm, I'm a familiar with Brett's argument. Uh, Grant Newsom has also made the argument. I have been a proponent of it as well. That presence matters. And I know that former Assistant Secretary of Defense Bob Work is going around preaching that we can't stay forward, we can't be the world's policemen, and we got to come back. Uh, and, you know, we can't go on all these six-month deployments and all, these things that are kind of along these lines of defeatism and isolationism. And I, I reject that. So we do need to figure out a way to operate in these forward spaces uh, on a more continuous basis. You know, I mentioned that 2015 timeframe, that kind of transformational shift for the POC, PLA Navy, uh, that's coincided with the amount of presence that they have now. It used to be before 2015, you know, back when I was at CTF-70, then with 7th Fleet, and then on my time at PAC Fleet, that, you know, the Chinese were operating maybe one or two, maybe three, uh, you know, warships in the South China Sea on any given day, one or two, maybe three. Uh, today, it's well over 10. So they've, they've been able to transform their presence down there continuously. They have three major naval bases down there that are the size of Pearl Harbor at Mischief, Fiery Cross, and Subi Reefs. You know, they've got 10,000-foot runways. They've got pier space. It's, it's, like I said, it's on the order of magnitude like Pearl Harbor, and they've got three of them. And so they've built up their presence down there. So it's going to be a challenge for us to do it. That's why our, you know, uh, our allies and partners were so critical to us and why it was so critical that we, uh, you know, got that agreement with uh, Enhanced Cooperation, the EDCA uh, Development Agreement with the Philippines, or maybe I'm mixing up with Taiwan, but we had a de- development under the Obama administration, give them credit there, it was a combined effort with state and military, DOD, to you know, get the Philippines to kind of let us back in, not to have permanent basis, but on a rotational basis. And that was working well until, uh, you know, uh, uh, the, the current leader is stepping out now. It's escaping me. name's escaping me. Uh, Duterte. Uh, that all went, to, you know, went down the toilet. And so we lost the, the ability to have that kind of presence that you're talking about. So how do we get... How do we operate down there? Well, we should have big decks down there, in my opinion. We should have an, a carrier or an ARG operating down there uh, on, a, on a continuous basis where our, our, our smaller ships can, you know, kind of work together uh, with them and, and then, you know, maybe 
refuel and resupply out of Singapore or other places. But uh, that's getting to be increasingly of an ch- increasing challenge for us. And in a force structure where we're still saying we're 50-50 between the, you know, the, the lamp and pack fleets and we're having trouble with, you know, maintenance and readiness that I know you guys have focused in on. We got a challenge there, and so something's got to give. There's got to be some kind of give. I mean, even the Trump administration was having the debate over money to build new poles or money to keep up readiness. And somebody's got to come in and say, we can't have this. We can't have one or the other. They're not mutually exclusive. We need both. So let's get serious about this. And I don't see any champions in the Congress. Certainly don't see any champions in this current administration. And uh, that's that's the worrisome part. Uh, but with the toys that we have now, we should be able to. We need to do something. And being forward is the right uh, situation. And with that comes, obviously, defensive measures, uh, because you're going to have to deal with uh, DF-21D and DF-26, and an increasing uh, PLA Navy submarine threat. Earlier, you mentioned something that I think was one of the more interesting developments in the last year, and that has been, uh, at least from from my seat, a a very welcome shift and change in Japan and the Japanese national security infrastructure. I I talked a few weeks ago with uh, an individual who had come back from working with the Japanese and wasn't the first time. And he repeated what I had heard from other people who worked with the Japanese military recently. At least inside their lifelines, they have a very mature and realistic view of China's intentions. And that is reflecting itself in some of the comments made by their civilian leadership. And when you look at our friends and allies in the Western Pacific, of course, you think about Japan, South Korea, Australia, and uh, people on the periphery, uh, Philippines, Singapore, uh, even even Vietnam, and some of the other players in that area. And the question asks is asked that if the Chinese do decide to move against Taiwan, you have the Taiwanese forces that, to be blunt, you would have thought that the, the Taiwanese would have spent more on the national defense the last decade, but they haven't. Um, you have Taiwan, you have the U.S., but how many of our allies would show to the game would actually, uh, national caveats is a different discussion, but uh, should things go hot there, is there anybody that we could rely on to, uh, to support us if we go to back our play in the support of Taiwan? And if you have people who are from more likely to less likely from that list or a couple other people you throw in, I'd just be interested to see your opinion on that. Sure. Well, definitely Japan we can count on in the sense that Japan knows in their heart of hearts that when China, you know, was able to take Taiwan, that Japan would be next. And if you follow Chinese writings and what they say and what they think and what they believe and what they teach their people and what their people watch in movies and whatnot, that the Chinese want to pay back the Japanese for, you know, the rape of Nanking and what happened in World War II. So the Japanese know that there's not any, you know, the people know it. Uh, they've, they've had the same problem in the Chinese government or the Japanese government over the last, uh, you know, 
several 50 years like us that they were first they were weak then they were like getting rich and then they said okay we don't want to provoke them so we're going to walk this kind of same line as the americans but it's been clear that japan's had an epiphany over the last 18 24 months about this or maybe even going back to the start of the virus uh, and they are they're really on fire now and so the debates are really about how they can mobilize their economy and their spending to get what they need but there's no illusions in in tokyo about what would come if the chinese were able to take taiwan so i think they're in for this for their own own skin which is always the best motivator uh, obviously taiwan they played the same game uh to do not provoke uh, you can remember when chen shui bian was the leader of taiwan the first democratic progressive party leader i mean we had our own administration under bush chide him and castigate him for being too reckless and provocative so we on our own we have we we, we have blame here where we were telling the taiwans 20 years ago to sit down and shut up or 15 years ago uh sit down and shut up and don't provoke you know, the prc uh, instead of we should have been telling them 15 20 years ago hey you need to man up and arm up and get ready uh we pushed them to go to an all-volunteer force and now they're like oh we don't have enough people and we don't have a populace that's trained and, and recruited and, and, you know, understands the military. So those are some problems brought on ourselves. South Korea, that's a tough problem. I think the current administration wants to stand with the United States and, and, and defend themselves against uh, what they know is a China that uh, views them as a vassal state. Uh, but they've got problems there because they also expect the United States to help them with North Korea, and they've got that problem. And so... That, that's a tough one to call, and it takes American leadership to bring them on board, and I, I don't see it right now. Another one, uh, you mentioned Australia. I think the Australians would come, be willing to fight. Uh, the problem that they have is they don't have much to bring to the fight. Uh, you know, we're talking about this AUKUS, uh, Australia-U.S.-Canada uh, agreement that was announced last year. Uh, all fine and good. I'm supportive of it, but uh, you know, really, we should be asking ourselves why in 2016, when the Australians were trying to get a new follow-on submarine to the Collins class, did we, the United States, not work with them uh, to help them understand that the best choice for them would have been to go with the Japanese? Uh, I wrote an op-ed with Fred Smith, another retired captain, uh, intel captain, in 2016, got published in the Wall Street Journal, where we recommended that the United States help Australia get with the Japanese because a Japanese boat not only is it reliable and capable but it comes with this ability to now have all three navies work together uh, with the same material uh, US Japanese and, and the Royal Australian Navy uh, but we didn't do that so now we're looking at something that's out again out in the out years 2040 maybe uh, to get a nuclear boat down in Australia that's too late uh, this is going to be decided before 2040 uh, but the Australians have PH, the Australians have the, the will, and so we would welcome that. Uh, and it also gives us a place to base out of and, and approach the problem from a different vector. Uh, India is another one that you didn't mention, but I'm sure you were considering. India is another nation that we should be really courting uh, because they're a democracy and they share the same fundamental core beliefs as the United States. Now, they've got a history of non-alignment. They've got a history of closeness to the Russians. Uh, for material and training for the people, 
but they're also a great power in many ways. They're going to be the most populous uh, nation on the earth in the, in the next year or so, and they have a great capability. Uh, and they also have, you know, decades or not decades, but millennia of, of controversy with China. And so they, they, they are naturally worried. And right now, you know, everybody's watching Taiwan Strait and eastern Taiwan and the rockets flying over Taipei. Uh, but we should also be aware that in the last 48 hours, 72 hours, we're seeing an uptick in PLA Air Force operations on the Indian border. And if the, if the, the PLA is threatening India right now. And you recall uh, two years ago, there was 50 people that were killed along the line of actual control, a border between China and India, and you know, 20 Indian soldiers were killed and 30 uh, PLA soldiers were killed in a very gruesome, uh, bloody battle, uh, hand-to-hand combat. Uh, so there's some serious uh, concern in India right now. The Indians were woken up uh, to this threat and how real it was for them uh, with those, the murder of their soldiers in their territory. So I think, you know, we, we have a lot of problems, but one of the things that America has that other nations don't have, and I see it living here in Europe these last few years, which is strange for me because I spent my whole life in the Pacific, is that, like I saw in the Pacific throughout my career in life, is that when America stands up and leads, other nations will follow. Other nations will, they, they know about our history. I was in Guadalcanal in 2019. I was in Kiribati, Tarawa in 2019. And there's people there that, you know, weren't born 80 years ago. They're all, you know, for the most part, people born in the last 50 years, less than 50 years. And they still love America. And they believe that America is a force for good because of what we did in World War II. So we have a huge reserve of soft power that we can bring to bear if we will stand up and lead and not follow this, you know, propaganda that America's in decline. Well, that's a, that's a, that's a good place for me to step in and say thank you for coming on today and, and ask you if there's any, any place people can look for your work uh, and thoughts coming up in the, in the next few months or so and where they can find it. Uh, I'm not really a big social media guy, so I don't have Twitter and I don't do any of that. So if somebody's interested in uh, contacting me, have them, uh, send an email to your uh, location, and you can forward them on to me. But I'm I'm kind of I'm a luddite when it comes to you know social media. I, I do speak a lot. I'm I, I, I do stay engaged and write papers and whatnot. But uh, I'm not really out there on the on that front. Now, Jim, with the uh, with the quality and quantity of, uh, of the product you produce, uh, I don't know if the if the world can handle you fully engaged because there's a lot there. <laughs> and I do encourage everybody when you're looking at bylines or if you hear the name uh, Jim Fennell, uh give it a listen, uh, give it a read. And I especially appreciate you giving us an hour of your time there. I know it's it's late in, in Switzerland, and I wish you the best. I look forward to having an opportunity to talk to you again in the future, Jim. Well, thanks, thanks so much, uh, you guys. I really, uh, like I said at the beginning, it's been an honor for me. I really appreciate uh, what your uh, blog and, and Commander Salamander, you know, that that voice that goes out to the the Navy fleet. Uh, we're all uh, seafarers. We're all seamen at heart, and uh, we want our nation to be a sea power again. We 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 can't let that go. It's really the the heart and core of American national security. And we need to get it back. 
Thank you very much. And uh, thank you, everybody, for joining us today. And until next time, I hope you all have a great Navy day. Cheers. Or you'll be to blame for love has